0: So our reading this morning is from 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 now if you have a Bible I would encourage you to uh, to take that Bible out and turn to 1st Thessalonians 4 if you don't have a Bible with you then uh, you're welcome to use uh, one of the Bibles that are in the chair racks Uh, uh, they're scattered around that's the blue uh, uh, the blue book and uh, 1st Thessalonians 4 is on page 1257 Uh, the text will be up on the screen as I read it Uh, in just a minute, but having it open in front of you, if you have that opportunity, gives you the ability to follow along as we're teaching. Now, just for a quick context, uh, where we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9, uh, you need to go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 to see that what Paul has done, now that we're in chapter 4, is he has shifted uh, to now reminding the church in Thessalonica about some specific issues that they need to focus on in order to, in order to please God, right? So that's the pivot, that's the topical heading of verses 1 and 2 um, as chapter 4 begins. Now last week, and specifically in verses 3 to 8, uh, they, the, the Apostle Paul was saying, hey, this is how you are to live to please God specifically in the area of sexuality, right? And he made the case for how we use our bodies in a way that God designs in a way that maximizes our pleasure and joy in this in this world submitting our sexuality to the Lord now this week Paul's going to shift to a different topic in verses 9 to, to 12 right and that's how we interact with one another and how we work in the in the world that we're living in right so that's the topic this week now let me if you're able let me ask you to stand as I read this we do this as a, a sign of God's respect if you're not able to stand then of course please stay seated but I'm gonna read this and then because this is God's word when I'm finished I'm gonna make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God this is first Thessalonians chapter 4 starting at verse 9 now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Let me start again this week by talking directly to the kids. Kids, paying attention? Let me talk directly to you because I want you to know that I understand how difficult it can be to be a, to be a child. All right. Because parents. Parents, you might not know this, but, but kids, I know you know this. Parents can be very confusing people. They can. They can say very confusing kinds of kinds of things. Parents, you know this is true. You know this is true. All right, kids, listen just while I talk to the parents for, for, for just a second here. For example, parents, maybe you can relate to this. Um, one of the classic contradictions of behavioral expectations happens uh, with some regularity to me. I find find this happening to me. I catch myself into it. When it comes to the ability of children to function in the world around them, we desire them to be, parents, you know this is true, simultaneously loving, empathetic, community-oriented, outward-focused, right? We do, right? And we want them to be that. But we also want them to be self-reliant, hardworking, and independent, on the other hand right? Outward focused community-oriented, self-reliant, self-dependent. And so if you're an adult, you can appreciate the need for both of these characteristics. But if you're a child, children, right? You can see how sometimes your parents' instructions to you can lead to serious confusion. This is what I mean, kids. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. Because in only a matter of minutes, I have found myself at different points in my uh, parental journey thus far saying to my children something like this i'll say look you know we exist as a family here okay it's not just you you're not just the only person here in this house so how about we start looking out for other people and not just looking out for yourself okay instead of just worrying about yourself why don't you look around and help someone get it kids have you ever heard parents say something like that right parents it's good right good stuff helpful important kind of things right now then listen though this is what i would do same child i'll say sometimes just a few minutes later when they attempt in their own way to help others who may not want help and screaming ensues right i will say excuse me is that your business no it's not please just worry about yourself just worry about you don't worry about what they're doing don't worry about that you worry about you got it Is it any wonder that being a kid can be confusing? And any reason, (laughs) and is it any wonder that in Ephesians 5, Paul tells fathers not to exasperate their children, right? Now that may not happen in anyone else's home, right? But please play for my children because they have to live with me. Now, I share this because I think that's sort of how you might feel when you read these verses here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Because in 9 and 10, we seem to hear Paul making the case for radical community with others. Love other people, right? You aren't just the only person here. You need to look out for other people. He's making a case for mutual dependence among the people of God. right? Then, verses 11 to 12, it sounds like he tells them they should be minding their own business. That they should do their best not to be dependent. He makes a case for independence so which is it? Dependence or independence? Ah, Spoiler alert, the answer, of course, is is both, but the question, right, that we need to look at is why and how. If he's saying both of these things, how do they fit together? Because there is a great potential for confusion here in these verses, and these verses have been, particularly 11 and 12, have been sometimes misunderstood as to what they mean and why Paul's saying what he's saying, right? So what I want to look at, and there's a kind of rough outline that you can follow along in the uh, in the bulletin though you don't really need you need it written down to follow it right but I want to talk about the need for dependence on the one hand and that's primarily verses 9 and 10 and then I want to talk about the need for independence and that's primarily verses 11 and 12 and then we need to think about okay what brings them together how do the two really work together um, and both be true at the same time all right first let's look at the need for dependence right just to reorient ourselves look at verses 9 and 10 now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia but we urge you brothers to do this more and more now this is fairly straightforward right what's Paul urging them to to do to love one another right and what kind of what kind of love brotherly love right that's the, 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 that, the Greek word here translated brotherly love It's the Greek word philia Right now, in, in the northeast part of the United States, right, this is actually a pretty familiar term because it's where the city Philadelphia gets its name. Now, some might debate whether it's true of the people who live in the city of Philadelphia, but it is called, at least, the city of brotherly love, and that's the reason, because that's what the word Philadelphia means. Now, in contrast... There are other Greek words for, for love, but in contrast to the other Greek words for, for love, brotherly love is not the romantic love between a, a husband and a wife. It's not the, the predetermined sort of instinctual natural love that a mother has for a, a, for a child. It's the love of friendship. It's a close bond, a bond like, uh, like brothers, based on, on shared interests, on shared tasks, on shared affinity. Now, outside of the Bible, in other Greek Writing, it's a word that refers to the affection that, that happens between people when they live, you know, when they're, when they're part of a certain group, when they belong together, right? You're a clique, you're a your, your crew, right? That's what, that's what it refers to. When the, when the New Testament uses the term, it's specifically taking that term and using the concept to talk about how Christians ought to love one another, fellow, fellow believers, right? So Paul is urging the Christians in Thessalonica to continue loving each other now to some that might sound you know exclusive oh sure just love the christians right but but you need to understand that that statement for the church to love everyone within the church you need to understand how radically inclusive that kind of love really was in other words, defining brotherly love in this way completely would have gone against the social expectations about which people you were supposed to love and affiliate with because the cultural expectation of the time, right, was that your friends, your, your, your crew, it was defined by your, by your social status. It was defined by your class. It was defined by, by what schools you went to or it was defined maybe by your by your race or the language you speak or where you came from. Those were the things that defined the the people that you were to show brotherly love to. And then comes along the Christian church and says that God defines brotherly love differently because it says that your friends are not determined by your social status, by your class, by your race, by by your language. The church was open to people of all social classes, all ethnic backgrounds. And that was very, very different. Right? Christianity is distinctive because it upends the social convention of who we love. It tears down the barriers that exist between people groups in the, in the world with a message of, of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation first with God, that's the primary relationship that has been broken because of our sin. But that, that reconciliation between us and God is what becomes the basis for our reconciliation with other people. In other places, Paul uses the language of, of adoption, and that's a really good metaphor. When someone believes the gospel, when they come into the, into the church, they are adopted into a new family with God as the heavenly father. And when that happens, we get new siblings, right? That's the gospel. The older brother Jesus has ushered us into a new family. Now, this isn't to say that the church always lives up to <laughs> the urging of Paul here. But the Thessalonians, it seems the Thessalonians, they were doing a pretty good job of it. It seems, right? They were caring for each other locally. They were even, verse 10, uh, caring for others throughout the region, you go back, Paul talked about that earlier in the letter, how they were doing that. So the Thessalonians, they seem to be doing an okay job with it. Sadly, churches, though, a lot of churches do fail, up, uh, fail to live up to this, this standard, right? And some of you might have stories in your own past where you've, you've experienced something like that. But when it happens, when it actually does work the way that it's supposed to work, when Christians do love one another in, a, um, in, in the appropriate way, it is a powerful thing. I read um, about a pastor's wife describing how one Thanksgiving uh, she hosted 27 people for dinner in their, in their modest home. 27 people. And it took reconfiguring kind of the home with, you know, rooms and tables. And, but they had such a good time doing it that they decided to sort of just, like, let's just leave the house this way. We'll just leave it like this. It kind of worked, right? So they, they transitioned into, like, we're just going to do this on a, on a regular basis. So it became a regular event for them to have all kinds of people over for a large family dinner you know, oftentimes on you know on Sunday afternoons and one of the regulars uh, at, at these at these dinners uh, years ago uh, was a guy named Zion now Zion wasn't able to be there every week when they ha- when they had the dinner and that's because Zion was finishing the last two years of a 10-year jail sentence and he was only allowed outside the prison walls with cl- with close supervision for five hours every other week Right? So, so what he would do is he would come to church and then he would join this brotherly dinner a couple times a month. Now, think about how radically inclusive that Philadelphia-style love must seem to a guy like Zion. Right? One week when he was first um, starting to come, Zion was unusually quiet, and, and tears started to come to his eyes as the potatoes were being passed. And it wasn't because, like, I hate potatoes. This is so terrible. Like, you know. No, he looked at his host as the potatoes were being passed and he said, you know i have never been in a home like this before i I mean it's been a very long time he said no actually never i've never i've never been in a home not like this with love with christ with brothers and sisters with children and i belong here that's what he said Do you hear the amazement in a statement like that the table of love is a table where he has a seat he belongs at that table it's amazing it's pretty radical right, we belong to each other, pastors, wives, and convicts, go figure, and everything in between, now that's the need for dependence, now, verses 11 and 12, the need for independence, let's read those verses again, again, Paul says, we urge you more and more, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one, okay, so first what's he saying like just on the face of it well at the very least before we before we do anything to try to reconcile this with what he just said we should see very clearly that um, he's saying able Christians Christians who are able to work that they should work that they should earn their own living that they should avoid unnecessarily depending upon others to provide for their their basic needs at the very least that's what he's saying and what he's trying to combat in saying this is the concept of idleness being idle, right? In his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul actually makes a comment that elaborates a little bit more on, on, on this idea. Because 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, all right, if you're in 1 Thessalonians, you can get there pretty quickly because 2 Thessalonians follows 1 Thessalonians. So you can turn there if you want. Look at verse 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Right? Verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 3. We hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work but busy bodies now such persons we command and encourage in the lord jesus christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living okay in other words what he's saying is troublemakers need to get a job right do something useful that will occupy your time now contextually there are two possible reasons Why Paul might be encouraging people, specifically in Thessalonica, to get a job and start working. Now first, and as we keep reading we'll see this next week, as you keep going in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll see that there was at least some theological confusion and some theological misunderstanding in this church specifically that needed to be corrected among the Thessalonians right, because some bad theology was leading to some bad practice, and we'll see next week that at least some of the people in Thessalonica had taken Jesus' teaching, that that, that he wanted them to be watching for his return, they had taken that so literally that they were just sitting around like sipping a cold beverage and like watching the sky, wonder when, maybe next hour, right, I'm not going to do anything, because who knows, it could be, right, they were taking that to that kind of extreme, now whether this was on their part an excuse to get out of work or they were sincerely just mistaken one way or the other it doesn't really matter the encouragement to Paul the the, the encouragement that Paul is making to them is the same he's saying look get up take the umbrella the little umbrella out of your lemonade and get to work because Jesus said that we should be watchful for his return and he told us to be prepared for his return but he told us that we wouldn't know when it was going to be and that the right way to be prepared and to be watchful for his return is to be actively doing the work that he's called you to do in the meantime, not passively waiting. Now we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks but some people believe that that's probably the main reason why Paul is emphasizing this here. Not to be idle, to get to, get to work, to take care of yourself, to meet your own, to meet your own needs and not depend upon others right? That's, that's why some people think. Now, other people, other possibility favored by some other scholars is that Paul is really talking about here, what he's really taking on is the Roman system of patronage, the Roman system of patronage. Now, we don't have a, a super close approximation in our world today to what this would have looked like, but in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day, right, a culture that Thessalonica would have been right in the middle of, this is what would happen. You'd have a really wealthy person, a patron, who would give financial support? Would give opportunities to men of lesser uh, lesser standing, lesser so, lesser social standing. That would be the client. So you'd have a patron, and you'd have a client. And these clients, right, for their part, and, and in return for the, the patronage that's offered, the support that was offered, what they would do is they would they would then show uh, show service, show respect, loyalty. to the the patron and it took several forms right for example and this is probably the closest to how we might still use the word patron a little bit in our uh, in our culture today right sometimes when it came to the arts you would have a a patron who would employ someone to to be their client and it kind of worked like uh, like that an artist would be would be sponsored. He would be cared for by a by a wealthy patron, and in um, and in return for his material needs being met, this person would uh, uh, produce works of uh, musical composition, or uh, paintings, or, or sculptures, or, or things like that. Now, truthfully, that's really just an economic arrangement. I mean, it's kind of the way the culture worked at the time, but that's an economic arrangement. Sort of the same as a wealthy person, you know, hiring an, an artist in residence or, uh, you know, or supporting some sort of scholarship so that someone can uh, produce works of, of culture or art, right? That, that was this, this it could have worked like that. Now, sometimes though, in the Greco-Roman world, the system of patronage took on a, a little bit more calculating kind of a, of a flavor. Sometimes it was more social, more political. And this is really where Paul would have had the problem. And this is where, where people kind of say, like, no, you need to work for yourself. This is why Paul might have said that, they say. Because a patron sometimes would collect people, especially valuable if they were Roman citizens. He would collect them, and he would basically pay for their needs. Let me take care of you. All right, let, let, me, let me buy you this. Don't worry about that. I'll, ta- I'll take care of it. And he would sort of collect favors, right? And, and so they wouldn't have to work but in return they would be expected to support the social and the political interests of the uh, of the patron uh, whenever it was needed right in the assembly or in public debates you know so and say hey when people start talking about this you're with me right because we have an arrangement now this is where Paul would, would have had a problem And Paul would be saying here that Christians should avoid any situation where they might be tempted to act against their conscience because of an inappropriate, dependent relationship upon a patron. That would be a second possibility for why Paul is emphasizing the need for independence here. The need to work and support oneself, to take care of one's needs so that they would not be bought by some political patron right but I think we can say more generally regardless of which particular view you think Paul was specifically zeroing in on and there might be an element of both perhaps but we can say that Paul very much believed that it was contrary to our human nature to, to the design that God has made for us to sit around and just do nothing when we could instead be working and that's where this gets really radical again we talked about the radical aspect of community right people loving one another that's that were different than them right radical radical dependence here we get into an area that's radical again because what paul is saying is is part of a larger christian understanding about the very nature of what work is and that was very different from the understanding of work at the at the time right you see this when paul tells them that they should work with their hands Right now, he's not saying that only manual labor is, is worthy work, but he is in a very radical, very countercultural way, again, dignifying manual work. L- work with your with your hands. And this is a very clear jab, a very clear attack on Greco-Roman culture, right? Which believed that there were levels of dignity to work. And this is true throughout the ancient world, right? There were h- higher levels of work. Works of the mind, works of philosophy, works of art, right? These were the works of the aristocracy. And then there was the physical work, right? the work for the lower classes, the work for the slaves as it kind of went down the, the hierarchy. And that distinction between dignified mind work and undignified hand work was pretty much the view of the, of the culture of the time. It was almost universal in the ancient world. Right, because they viewed the material as actually less important than the intellectual and the spiritual. The material may be necessary, but it is a, of a lower spot on the hierarchy of importance. But of course, a biblical Christian worldview, a biblical understanding of the world, doesn't allow you to do that. It doesn't drive a wedge between, between the, 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 the work of the mind and the work of the hands. Right? Just think about God himself. Right? When God created Adam, go back to the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2. When God created Adam as a perfect image bearer of who he was, how did he do it? From the dust of the ground. Uh, in, you know, in, in a very figurative kind of sense, you know, Adam was created out of the, out of the dirt, out of, out of matter, out of the physicalness. You could, you could think about it in a, in a metaphorical way. God doesn't have physical hands, but, but God got, got dirt under his fingernails as he created Adam. Adam. It wasn't wasn't punishment, it wasn't unfortunate um, consequence like other religions uh, would believe, that humanity was created with physical bodies. It was intentional. We're physical beings, it's good. That's how God created it. Or or think about Paul, Paul himself. Paul was a, it was a tent maker. That was his his profession. He he made tents, he constructed tents. He got his hands dirty. Think of Jesus. Jesus himself almost certainly as a younger man, would have apprenticed with his adopted father Joseph as a as a carpenter and manual work. Right? He would have gotten his hands dirty. This is really important to emphasize. I think in our current culture, specifically, every generation needs to communicate this to the to the next generation. Right? I'm not trying to be a cranky old guy, but right, I talk to a lot of business owners who kind of say, "Hey, look, one of the things we struggle with in our world is helping young people understand." As I hire them into my business, helping young people understand the value of doing hard material hand work, right? You see it in just the the statistics about teenage employment, right? Uh, Employment rates for teens and students continues to remain very low in America related to historical standards. And of course the reasons can be complex for that, personal reasons, economic reasons, I get that. But the reality is that most of those 16, 17, 18, 19 year old kind of jobs, right? They're manual labor jobs, they're greasy jobs. Right? And even if one doesn't end up doing you know, the greasy manual hand labor kind of work for, for a career, there is significant benefit in understanding the dignity of work like that. Because if you aren't careful, then you can begin to become a culture and have a mindset that falls into the same trap as the ancient Greeks and Romans. Thinking that work with your hands is somehow beneath us. It's not. Right? If you were to think of it, one kind of catch takeaway phrase, all honest work done in God's world is dignified work. All honest work done in God's world is dignified work. A few years ago, I was flying home from, um, from our denomination's General Assembly, and I was sitting next to an airline pilot. Uh, he, he um, I wasn't in the cockpit. <laughs> he, um, he, um, he, he, lived, he lives in Atlanta, and he was flying from Atlanta to Philadelphia so that he could then fly another plane back to Atlanta. Right? Sometimes they have to do that. They try to maximize so that they don't you know, have kind of empty, you know, non-productive flights, but sometimes they have to do that. There was a plane in Philadelphia that needed a pilot back and so they were flying him to Philadelphia and then he was gonna return, right? So we got talking and it turns out uh, that this guy, he attended a church off and on throughout the, the years and as we talked, he actually had a right understanding about who Jesus was, about how someone came to, to know God and, and became a, got into a relationship with God. But most of his questions as we talked, the questions that he really wrestled with were questions about work, about where what he did fit into uh, the biblical storyline. And he, he liked flying planes. He was good at flying planes, but he was wondering, and he kind of asked me, he's like, maybe, ah, maybe it's not really good work. Maybe, there, maybe there's something, um, something better, something more Christian, he said, that I should be doing. Now, you might expect talking to a, a Christian minister sitting next to him on the plane, someone who actually who did leave a corporate job to go and and become a pastor. You might think that I would immediately begin, you know, encouraging him. It could, yeah, maybe. You, yeah, I think you should. Right. I, you know, leave, leave the. You know, uh, leave Delta Airlines and and, uh, and and you should you should go to seminary. Right. And there's lots of guys I would do that with. If I got to know him. Maybe that is the right thing for for some people. And I've had that kind of conversation with people. But that wasn't his issue. Right? From what I could tell in, in talking to him, this Delta Airlines pilot, what he needed to hear was that what he was doing every day was, in fact, perhaps the most spiritual, the most Christian work that he could be doing. Right? Because all honest work done in God's world is dignified work. Right, Think about it from his perspective, from the perspective of an airline pilot. Right? What this man did, working with his hands to you know, flip switches and turn dials, hopefully in the right order, and the right direction, right? what he did with all those levers and dials and buttons in a way, it was incredibly useful in God's world because he was enabling hundreds of people every single day to travel safely hundreds of miles in mere hours. So we talked about this and I said like look, think about this, every day passengers on your plane almost certainly include people like this. They most certainly include anxious patients who are traveling somewhere to a hospital to get life-saving treatment. Almost every day there are people on this plane who are brave soldiers traveling to assignments to better protect our country. There are hard-working business people meeting clients so that our economy can function to bring food to our tables. Every day on these planes, there are probably grieving young people traveling to the funeral of grandparents in another city. Happy families enjoying vacations that are, that are mixed in with, with all of that. Christian pastors like me who are traveling to conferences or to assemblies to learn better how to minister the gospel of Jesus to people. All of those things are happening and you in your work are enabling it to happen. Look, Maybe God is calling you into full-time Christian ministry. And I'd love to help people discern that, right? That the church needs that. But if he's not doing that, right? Then he's not asking you to settle for some lesser level of, of work. Don't ever think that whatever your version of flying the plane is, is somehow less dignified. All honest work done in God's world is dignified work because it contributes to society, because it frees you from being a burden on others. It's a very loving thing to do. In the very best sense, it's the independence that Paul says that we need. And when that sinks in, when you better appreciate your place in God's economy, then you can understand the quiet life that he's talking about in verse 11. Do you see that phrase? Right? We need to understand this term, living quietly. Right? Living quietly. That's not sitting lemonade on the deck of some cottage by the beach or a dock at the lake. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but this term, living quietly, it's, it describes people who are content, who are productive contributors to their community they're quiet in the sense that they don't cause trouble right they're good neighbors you want them on your your block and this is where we begin to see things coming together right we need dependence brotherly love community compassion for others but we also need independence dignified work that seeks to glorify god and meet our needs right we, this is what brings them brings them together the fact that while you need both true dependence love and true independence work you can't really have one without the other think about this you can't really you can't have true love without work you can't right you see if you desire community and you desire connection with other people but you aren't willing to give something of yourself for that relationship for it to occur then you don't really have love for other people right you want community so that other people can meet your needs can serve you but you don't really love others right you only love yourself if you want community without the, without the willingness to contribute to it, without the willingness to work, to take your part in it, then it's not really about community with others that you're interested in. It's really more about serving yourself. You can't have true love without work. But neither, on the other side, can you, have, can you truly work without love. Not truly, not in the way that it was intended to, right? I mean, you can, be, you can be economically self-sufficient. You can pay all your bills. You can fully fund your retirement. You can properly insure yourself and protect yourself from financial risk. But ultimately, if all that work isn't done for some higher purpose, something outside of yourself, some motivation of love, then what have you really gained? Right, your work was made for more than that. It was made so that it can benefit some higher purpose outside of yourself, so that it can benefit others. So do you see right? You can't have community unless you're willing to work for it and you can't really work unless you're doing it for some higher motivation of love and and community with others, right? True love works and true work loves. Now that's what brings the two concepts together, right? The mutual necessity of both, the fact that you can't really have one, one without the other. But nowhere do you see that more clearly, this coming together, of true love that works and true work that loves. Nowhere do you see that more clearly than in the life and the work of Jesus because no one more perfectly brings dependence and independence, love and work. No one more perfectly brings those two things together than Jesus because he knows, he knows what perfect community feels like. Right? He was one of three persons in the Godhead, mutual love, community that predates the creation of humanity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, loving one another and perfectly community. He knows what that feels like right? But he left that so that we could experience some of it too. Jesus, in his human nature, he also knows what it's like to love like a brother, right? He chose to share his life with other people, other disciples. He asked them to pray for them. They ate together, right? And that love that he showed to them and taught them to experience, that love is the greatest work that the world has ever known, right? This is what I mean. Well, I might sound frustratingly contradictory to my kids right when I say to my children that they need to think of others and not just themselves right it's not because independence is wrong it's because they're doing independence wrongly in other words if you think that independence just means that other people should serve you then you don't understand independence and on the other hand when I say to my children that they need to back off and not worry about the business of others it's not because depending on others is wrong it's because they're doing dependence on others wrongly they're seeking to serve themselves rather than to Uh, to to serve other people right here's the convicting thing though the thing that all of us need to understand right It, it, it might have every reason to frustrate my children but here's the thing I'm really just like them and so are you We're just like them. We do neither work nor love correctly. And in that failure to do that, we rebel against God. The the God who gives us both work and love, we rebel against that. We think that community exists for our benefit. And we think that work entitles us to call the shots and to do whatever we feel like. And the Bible calls both of those things, both of those extremes and misunderstandings, calls both of them sin, saying to God that we think that we will be better at ruling our lives rather than him. And what sin does simultaneously is disconnect us from community, community with God, but as a result, we can't have the dependence, the community with other people that we need because of sin. And it incurs a debt so large that no amount of work on our part, no matter how hard we work, could ever repay. All the independence in the world, all the hardworking, independent nature that we might muster cannot do for us what we need, and that is to erase the penalty that is due us for that sin. And that's why what Jesus did On the cross the work that he did is so absolutely remarkable because on the cross you have a love that is working a love in action and you have a work that is loving right you can always tell someone that works with their hands can't you you encounter someone that works with their hands you know it my little league baseball coach when i was 10 11 and 12 was a contractor mr condell one of the gentlest kindest men i knew but man did he have rough hands i mean calloused Hands, scraped hands, scarred hands. He was a contractor. He worked with his hands. And you could tell that he worked with his hands when you looked at his hands. When Thomas the disciple needed proof that Jesus had done his work, that it had been accomplished, what did he ask to see? His hands. He said, I need to see the hands. Have you seen Jesus' hands? Have you seen them? They pounded nails through those hands so that he could accomplish in his work the greatest, most loving thing that the world has ever known. Right? They are the evidence, his hands, that he voluntarily experienced disconnection from community with the father so that he wouldn't ha- so that we wouldn't have to experience a, a lack of community with the father. Right? His hands are the evidence that the debt that we incurred are paid, that that debt is paid. They're evidence that the work has been done and that it has been done for us. In love. Everything that Paul is urging the Thessalonians to do here is impossible without Jesus having done it first. True love works, and true work loves. Paul is not making contradictory statements here. Now, you may find the instructions of Paul baffling, you might find them exasperating, but if you do, if you don't understand that connection, then you will constantly bounce back and forth between those two extremes. wanting to love without a willingness to put into into community the kind of work that's necessary to make it happen right wanting to work but really only to meet your needs and not the needs of of others or something greater and the only way to stop bouncing between those extremes is to put your faith in the only one jesus who has been perfectly able to do both let's pray father we thank you for what you have done for the work that you have done the work that you have accomplished on our behalf And for our good, thank you, Lord, that your love did not stay inactive, but it worked for us. And thank you that your work was not futile or in vain, but that it was accomplished uh, for a purpose and a purpose of love. So Lord, let us rest in that work that you have done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.